Hey there, it's Scary Parish. It's Monday, uh, March 20th. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and we've uh, got a lot to get to, including Brad Underwood's jump from Oklahoma State to Illinois, Mike Hopkins' decision to take the Washington job, and Syracuse using it as an excuse to do what it wanted to do anyway, which is keep Jim Beheim beyond next season. That's all coming later, but I want to start with the NCAA tournament. We're down to the Sweet 16, the reigning national champ, Villanova, no longer around, lost to Wisconsin, round of 32. Duke, no longer involved, lost to South Carolina, round of 32. Norlander, I'll start by asking you this. What's the biggest surprise from the opening two rounds of the NCAA tournament? Is it Villanova being gone? Is it Duke being gone? Or is it that the ACC only has one team left out of nine that started this NCAA tournament? Or is it something else entirely? Huh. Parrish. Hmm. Shout out. Shout out. Shout out. Where am I going? Where am I going with this? Shout out to what, GP? What are we shouting out right now at the start of this podcast? Are we going to shout out our big Sweet 16 matchup inside Madison Square Garden? Are we going to shout out the best damn regional semifinal that's going down that I will be attending in person at Madison Square Garden on Friday night? Man, I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Baylor, Baylor against South Carolina? Devin Downey against Terry Teagle. Shout out to Devin Downey. Shout out to Terry Teagle inside the garden. Shout out to Tweety Carter. Shout out to Lace Darius Dunn. Oh, my goodness. Shout out to Mike Boynton Jr., who, by the way, his boss just got a new job at Illinois. Boynton was the pre-Downey Downey with the Gamecocks. This is incredible. Parrish, I did not – I knew the Carolina thing. Like, first of all, I I like sometimes – (laughs) like, I know the followers don't, but, like, it didn't hit me until like the final minute when South Carolina was going to beat Duke. I was like, "Holy crap! This thing that we like has become a thing on the podcast. This is the first time ever that program's won back-to-back tournament wins ever." And of course, it happens in the shout out to Devin Downey era. And so then it finally hit me. And then I didn't even put two and two together until you texted me what late, late last night, this morning. I don't even remember when it was. And you were like, we got to talk about, you know, the Ion College basketball, you know, honorary game here. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, Baylor. Oh, yeah, Terry Teagle. Dude, it, this is the best. Dude, it, it really is the best. I mean, we get Devin Downey's alma mater against Terry Teagle's alma mater in the media capital of the world. Has there ever been a more anticipated Sweet 16 matchup than this one? I don't think so. Not, not as it relates to this particular Ion College basketball podcast. Give me Baylor. Give me South Carolina. Give me Devin Downey. Give me Terry Teagle. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shout out to Curtis Jarrells. <laughs> I can drop. I can drop references left and right here. This is you've been studying. This, I can tell. <laughs> I might have checked some Ken Palm pages here. <laughs> um, you no, know, this is absolutely fantastic, man. Uh, and I understand that the East region is is by far now the least appealing of the four because. And everyone had Nova and Duke, obviously. And this is the latest reminder of just how the tournament can flip you upside down. No one had South Carolina winning that game. Nobody had, almost nobody had both Nova and Duke out, obviously. I mean, if anyone had that in their pool, then they just haven't been watching college basketball. It's a total luck pick. And this is why I love it. Because no matter what, every single year, every single tournament, while certain things seem like such mortal locks... And if you want to eliminate Villanova from it, I get that because there were people talking about Wisconsin being able to pull that off. But no one, not even in that building, and South Carolina definitely had 
a quasi-home court advantage. No one thought Duke was not going to be able to minimally get to, and most people thought that it would be able to just roll until that regional final, even against Terry Teagle's alma mater, <laughs> presumably. Um, but, yeah, just just incredible. So there are a number of places that we could go. I just wanted to start with the shout-out to Devin Downey and to Lace Darius Dunn and to Tweety Carter and to Mike Boynton Jr. And it, it's just it's it's really cool. And now, by the way, in that region, GP, we are guaranteed one yep. of those four coaches will make their first Final Four. Somebody told me that during Baylor's opening round game, I think, one of the announcers mentioned Terry Teagle, <laughs> and, and they got really excited watching it. And uh, by the way, shouts to Alex on Twitter. You saw this. I gave it to you yesterday on Twitter. Um, he was commentating on an e-game. Like, my son, my 14-year-old is really into this. Like, he's like probably knows who Alex is. And uh, he's commentating on a, on, I guess it's like a gaming tournament. Uh, I apologize. I'm mostly unfamiliar with it. But they're like shouting out all these different gamers, right? And then Alex at the end of it just decides to throw in a shout out to Devin Downey. And his, his commentating partner is like, who's Devin Downey? Uh, so, so good. It's so good. If you, can't, if you haven't seen it yet, go check my Twitter feed or Norlander's Twitter feed. Dude, put it in the podcast post. Just embed that tweet. I w- I'll, I'll help if you need to. Because – the the guys like on a roll shouting all these names, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you just get this Devin Downey shout out. I don't know where, and this guy's like, wait, who's Devin Downey? Who's Devin Downey? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so honestly good. a highlight of the first weekend. That was um that was truly truly amazing. And so now, I mean, I gotta presume Devin might try and get into the into the building on Friday. So if that's the case, dude. If you get I mean, a if you get a selfie with Evan Downey, it's over with. I I got I got to try it, and from there, listen, we we cultivate the relationship. We try and set up some sort of in person three man podcast. Try and make it happen. I mean, I, is Devin Downey going to the Final Four? Like, is South Carolina going to the Final Four? Because if well, South ha- Carolina well, is going to the Final Four, Devin Downey is going to the Final Four. Well, how about this? I mean, listen, uh, three days ago, the idea that we would be talking about anybody other than Villanova or Duke going to the Final Four out of the East Regional was silly. I mean, just no, like, nobody was talking. Like, I, I know there's somebody out there talking about it, but, like, really nobody's talking about it. Duke was the favorite in Las Vegas to win the national championship. Villanova's the reigning national champions and the number one overall seed. So we had the number one overall seed and the favorite in Vegas to win the title in the same regional. It was coming down to them. And even if one of them got upset, they weren't both getting upset before the Sweet 16, except they did. And so check this out. I don't know what South Carolina is going to the Final Four, but somebody's got to go to the Final Four, and it's got to be one of these. Wisconsin, Florida, Baylor, or South Carolina. That's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, it is insane. Like what, Somebody, either Greg Gard, Michael White, Scott Drew, or Frank Martin is going to make the first Final Four of his career, and it could be in Michael White's first ever NCAA tournament. Greg Gard's only second year as a head coach. It is... Um, it is, you know what, we talked about this before, where we get the bracket on Selection Sunday and we start talking about pass. And, ooh, this team can't possibly get there because they're going to run into this. And this team can't possibly get there because they're going to run into that. And this team's got an easy path because all they got to do is this, this, and that. And then you look up, and it doesn't always happen, but it, it absolutely happened in this regional. You look up and you go, oh, wow, that is nothing like we anticipated. And now I'm assuming, I'm assuming Baylor or Florida is the favorite to make the Final Four. Yeah, uh, I, and we'll, I, I guess in this podcast, let's just kind of look back on what happened because I think people still want to listen to that. Plus, we got to record on Wednesday, so we can we can look forward. Is I mean, generally speaking, we're going to have plenty to talk about 
with the Sweet 16 before those games even get going. Um, real quick, uh, GP, I just want to mention this in the East, and then we can go wherever, wherever you want to go from uh, from there. I do think it's worth noting, at least mentioning, that uh, – and I make no excuses. Like, South Carolina played amazingly. Sandarius Thornwell, in my opinion, has actually been the best player through two games consistently across both those games of any player in the tournament. He's almost averaging 30 points better than seven and a half boards, four and a half rebounds. It's it's awesome. Um, but it is weird, and you had tweeted about this. I mean, the set of circumstances that led to this being such a stunning upset, and this is the biggest upset of the tournament, and actually, I, because of the teams left, I don't know if you'll have a bigger upset that we have the rest of the way. Because Unless Xavier were to beat, say, Kansas, maybe, in a, in a title game, because Florida's a top-five Ken Palm team, West Virginia's a top-six Ken Palm team, so even if you want to look at... And Wisconsin's been to the Final Four twice with guys that are on that team, so... Uh, from a shock factor, I actually don't think we're going to get anything bigger than South Carolina over Duke, and yet... I agree. I, I would say this. Um, okay. Xavier over Florida State was a bigger upset in terms of point spread. Strictly in terms of point spread. But, sure. in, ter- but in terms of, like, wow, it's it's South Carolina over Duke. Yeah, because and they, they also never win in the tournament. Xavier is known for runs in March. Florida State isn't. You know, the, the margin was was totally surprising, but... Um, you know, it was so very Xavier and so very Florida State for that game to go that way. But what I'm getting at here is you got a governor in North, and I'm not going to make a political. I'm just saying this is what happened. You got a governor in North Carolina that passed uh, a, a bill into law that's seen as discriminatory. And, and let's be honest, it is. And so because of that, the NCAA makes a stand. And because of that, it moves the games to South Carolina and only moves the games to South Carolina because that state hadn't hosted a tournament game in more than a decade because the Confederate flag had been hanging at the state house for so long, and only when that flag came down did the NCAA say, okay, we're going to put games back into that state. So they do what they put in Greenville, okay? That takes Duke out of North Carolina where it normally would play, obviously. And then the committee, I don't see why the committee had to do it like this, and in fact, it didn't. You could have flipped, for example, I think I looked at it last night real quick. Like you could have put Michigan... I believe if you just flipped Michigan and South Carolina, I don't think you break any of your bracket procedures and you just dodge having a seven seed getting to play a game less than two hours from its campus. I don't see why they don't do that. But because all of these things happen, a confluence goes down. Duke plays a quasi road game. They lose. No one's crying for Duke, nor should you. And in fact, if that game was played in Greensboro, I still think South Carolina would have won. But it's undeniable that Duke and the environment that it was facing was something that it normally wouldn't, and you just had a domino effect combined with a decision by the committee that's not great. And by the way, it's not the first time. You know, Louisville had to play, uh, what was it? A&M was like a three seed. They played Louisville and Lexington back in 07. Uh, Pittsburgh was a three that had to play a six seed in Milwaukee, or Wisconsin in Milwaukee in 2004. So you sometimes get these second-round games where the lower-seeded team have a geographical advantage, and it's not in the NCAA's you know, uh, procedures to avoid that. But going forward, it should, it should at least try. If you're going to give the top four seeds geographical preference, if you can float those seven and tens or those eight nines into regions where you're not going to have big interference there, I would just advise toward that. I just found the circumstances that led to that really interesting. Well, I tweeted last night, and I was very careful with the way I worded it because my initial, like as I'm just typing off the cuff, was so Pat McCrory's HB2 bill uh, cost him an election, which is undeniably true. Google it. It cost him the election. And uh, cost Duke 
uh, an opportunity to advance to the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. That's what I had at first. And I said, okay, that, like, that is taking all credit away from South Carolina. You know, like, we can't say that it absolutely co- – like, this is the thing that cost them. But we can say that it contributed. I use the word contributed because undeniably it contributed. I mean, it's the di- it is literally the difference between Duke playing a, a game against – if you just keep the bracket the way it is – against South Carolina and North Carolina or South Carolina and South Carolina. And if we can all recognize uh, what home court advantage means in most sports, but absolutely college basketball, you can't for a second tell me that it didn't contribute South Carolina playing in South Carolina. Of course, it contributed to what happened. Uh, Also, Duke not guarding. Also, South Carolina being unbelievable offensively. Also, Sindorius Thornwell. Like, I got it. All credit to South Carolina. But did the change of location and the way the bracket set up contribute was it one of the factors absolutely it was one of the factors and i still get all these dummies like just well you know you 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 can't blame it on the bill i'm not blaming it it was a factor it contributed it absolutely did that governor signing that bill into law cost him an election and it moved duke out of the state of north carolina into the state of south carolina and if duke were playing in the state of south carolina against i don't know kansas state then probably not that big of a deal. But playing South Carolina in South Carolina, it, it was, as you put it, a quasi-road game. Uh, go, you don't have to take my word for it. There are plenty of reporters who were there. Find them on Twitter. Ask them if it felt like South Carolina had a home court advantage. They're all going to tell you that it did. And if then you want to talk about how Allen Fieldhouse can be a home court advantage or Cameron Indoor can be a home court advantage or the Carrier Dome can be a home court advantage or the Dean Smith Center can be a home court advantage, well then... You know, having a home court advantage matters. South Carolina had one. It doesn't take away from what they accomplished. Frank Martin is in the Sweet 16 with South Carolina. That's amazing. As I wrote in a column uh, late last night, early this morning, when he took that job, I had a former SEC coach text me and say, why would Frank do this? The answer, by the way, leave Kansas State to South Carolina, is that his relationship with his athletic director at Kansas State, who's now the athletic director at Tennessee, uh, had deteriorated to the point where Frank was, he just wanted out. He, he was willing to take whatever good paying job in a, in a power five league that he could get. He just wanted out of Kansas State. He wanted away from his athletic director. So that's the answer. Why would he do it? But the coach actually said that's impossible. Like you just can't win there. Like you're not going to be able to do it. And you look up here, 2017, Frank Martin is in the Sweet 16. But like let's, you know, we don't have to talk around it or pretend otherwise. That HP2, HB2 bill, uh, absolutely contributed uh, to Duke getting moved at the state. That's undeniable. And it contributed to Duke losing to South Carolina in the state of South Carolina. To me, in my mind, that's also undeniable. Did not the, perhaps not the main factor, but it was absolutely a factor. Agreed. Um, what else to you from the weekend kind of stands out that you want to hit on? Well, let's just, uh, since we're talking about Duke as the favorite uh, in Las Vegas to win the national championship being eliminated before the Sweet 16, seems like a perfect opportunity to touch on the fact that the ACC had nine teams when this instantly tournament started. They only got one left. Eight of the uh, 16, I mean, eight of the nine were eliminated either in the first four, round of 64, or round of 32. I believe four of them were eliminated by... Uh, lower-seeded teams. Virginia was eliminated by a higher-seeded team, but they lost 65-39 to 39 for crying out loud. 26 points you're going to lose an NCAA tournament game to uh, by that margin. And, uh, like, how about this? There were people, t- 
talking about the ACC's, the best conference in the history of college basketball. You look up going second weekend of the NCAA tournament, uh, they got the same amount of teams still alive as the West Coast Conference. Like, who predicted that, say, five days ago? I know. Um, quick thoughts on that. Listen, the tournament can be such a crapshoot. I still, like, well, one, the Big 12 measured as the best conference in college basketball this year in terms of the metrics, and the ACC was two. I was of the belief that the ACC was the best league in throughout the regular season, and I still stand by that. Um, the tournament, you know, it's a fickle beast. This, these kind of things happen, but there's no doubt about it. I mean, because of because of this utter lack of performance, and you mentioned Virginia and, you know, Florida State just getting absolutely rolled by Xavier. There were some bad losses there. Um, you know, th- this year's ACC now does not even enter into the conversation of the, the two or three or four best ever leagues ever in a given season. It just can't. When you're that bad, and Carolina is the only team that makes it to the second weekend, and by the way, kind of barely gets there. I mean, Arkansas, I thought UNC was going to win that game by 20, and Arkansas kept it really interesting really late. We got really close to an all-time over there, um, but it's just the way the bracket breaks sometimes. It is so interesting to see that it happened with the ACC like that. Obviously a bad look for the league, and Luke DeCock, who's a columnist down in North Carolina, had mentioned that um, even if – so if UNC runs – the table to the title game, you know, if they get to the title game, the ACC will still lose out on $14.4 million worth of NCAA tournament units minimally versus what it had last year. You know, it got, what, six into the Sweet 16 last year, I think it was. Um, So, the you know, when we talk about these conferences not performing well, Let's remember that there are tournament units, and, and units essentially mean money that are sent to the conferences and, and broken up w- within the schools and the membership and all that. So when you don't perform in the tournament, there are, there are real financial uh, – well, if you do perform, there are windfalls. And if you don't, then, yeah, there are, there are big consequences to that. So it is uh, – it's funky how that broke for the ACC, and then the Big Ten has, has you know shown itself to be solid through two games. But – as always, I feel like we have this conversation almost every year on the podcast in March. This is not a total indictment of any conference. It doesn't mean one conference was overrated or underrated. Um, you know, two quick shout outs here. I mean, our, our buddy Jeff Goodman wrote that the ACC was historically overrated in a column. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that on face value. And then John Rothstein was the one who was just hammering home all season that this is the best league ever, no doubt about it. And I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. But at least it was interesting. And again, tournaments unpredictable. It is unfathomable to me that the ACC only has one team left, but yet here we are. And by the way, even despite losing that, the field we have of 16 teams in the games, it's still really, really good. So it's not as if the ACC needed to carry college basketball. I guess I would say this, and then we'll move on. Uh, Truth is, I'm with you on like watching four months of basketball and then drawing grand conclusions off of single 40 minute games about leagues like seems silly to me and I bet you most people who understand these types of things would would agree um it seems pretty clear though that the ACC wasn't as good as we thought it doesn't mean it was vastly overrated it, it probably means this ACC was never as good as Rothstein said it's not as overrated as Goodman said it just it, it was a good league not the best of all time and then it had an awful awful terrible NCAA tournament if we can understand how certain players can you know, be 40% three-point shooters, but then also maybe go two for nine in an NCAA tournament game from beyond the arc. Or we can understand how uh, a kid might be an 82% free-throw shooter, but then 
you know, go four of eleven from the line, or 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 the opposite, be a forty percent free throw shooter and make five of six from the line in any single game. Why is it so crazy to understand that maybe a team can't perform in one single game and it's not necessarily a big reflection of what they are over a four month span? Like, why is that so difficult? Steph, no, you're on. You're absolutely on the money. Yes. Yeah, like Steph Curry is going to have it has bad shooting nights sometimes. It doesn't mean he's an overrated shooter. It just means when you take a single game. And you and you try to draw a big conclusion from that, um, it can lead you down a, a, a path that that sometimes doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. You surprised Villanova lost to Wisconsin? Um, no, but I did not think they would lose. I thought that they would be able to win with a little bit of comfort. Um, Hayes's play to win it was awesome, and I love that he shouted out Jordan in the post game interview. Uh, afterward because it wasn't you know it wasn't quite Jordan against the Knicks in 91 but uh, the fact that he did I mean he did okie doke uh, bridges on that play um, and to me like the tournament it's kind of win-win for the tournament either way like it kind of stinks you know locally for the garden to not have Novo or Duke is, is brutal I mean that 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 takes a lot of the luster out of that region but um, yeah so you get a monumental upset maybe not monumental but you got a, a decent one number one overall seed and and the most recent national champ, obviously, that's big. But Wisconsin's the only program in college basketball that ma- that's made the second weekend four years in a row, and it does have familiar names on it. Ethan Happ was a top fifteen player this year. You know, Hayes and Koenig have been around for four years, and it's not like they didn't play their first two years. Like they've been important players for Wisconsin every single year of their career, and so with that, you still have enough interest there. And for Greg Gard, you know, to inherit the program uh, and continue what he's do what he's done. I thought was uh, pretty interesting, and then um, just you know, Florida winning the way it hold, did. Hold, hold, hold uh, on one second, because okay. like this is to me, this okay. is this is the classic Wisconsin Villanova, where in the moment you go, oh wow, what a massive upset! Reigning national champs, number one overall seed, lose to a uh, an eight seed in Wisconsin. If you go back to November, Wisconsin was Big Ten projected champs and ranked ninth in the country, and it was based on the roster. You mentioned it, Nigel Hayes, Bronson Koenig, Ethan Happ. I mean, those are three big-time, experienced college basketball players. I mean, guys who have, like, been deep in this NCAA tournament. And so the idea that, again, in a 40-minute game, they couldn't beat a Villanova team that you could maybe argue Wisconsin's more talented or equally talented. You know, in, if you go back to the preseason poll, I think Villanova was fourth or fifth in the preseason AP poll. Again, Wisconsin was ninth. So really, in the moment, this was a one versus eight game in the round of 32. Big picture, go back to November. It was the projected Big East champs against the projected Big Ten champs, and when you two top ten teams. And when you think of it in those terms, like how big of an upset was it really? You know, it's fair. No, it is. It is fair. And then what? Just, and then and then what? Uh, uh, Florida did to Virginia. My I mean, God. that's just. I uh, listen. I like. I, I am. I'm very in on Tony Bennett being a top 15 coach in college basketball and it would honestly if we w- we don't have the time now maybe in an offseason pod like if we started listing dudes it would be hard to get 15 because there are a lot of really good coaches and i am firmly in tony bennett's a top 15 college basketball coach but it's brutal when virginia gets to march and either it loses infamously by getting cracked by syracuse last year you know in other recent years has a one or two seed hasn't been able to break through to the final four and to go down this way when you just you can't get buckets. And by the way, Florida's designed to stop Virginia in many ways that Virginia is designed to stop Florida. But Mike White, to, to get that kind of win, was super impressive. Um, 
Florida's a team that I realize that a lot, a lot of people listening to this podcast know about them because you're big college basketball fans. But uh, if we have casual listeners, and shout out to the new people because our our listenership has definitely gone up in March. So thank you for subscribing in iTunes. Um, I understand that Florida is not a team you're overly familiar with because it doesn't have star names and all of that. But their guards can freaking go, man. And, and they're really good at defending. Very impressed by what the Gators did. I had Virginia winning. I actually thought it was going to be a, a, a thing where, you know, Bennett was experienced. He had the guys who would know what to do. London would play well. Wasn't that at all. Just a total fall-in-your-face moment. And I do wonder... We don't have to get too, too deep into this. But, like, what, what Tony's doing is working for that program. Like, he's, he's got Virginia on a level where it really hasn't been on a consistent basis, and I include the Ralph Sampson era. So it's working, but I wonder if Tony, you know, in the here and the now or in the coming weeks says, okay, what I have, it works, but at the same time, quite clearly, this could be preventing me from getting to a Final Four winning a national title. So how can I blend what I've built and my philosophy, and how can I adapt to me, that's the biggest thing for Bennett going forward because I think he's going to have to do that if he ever wants to win a national championship. He's terrific, and you can't find a college basketball coach or an NBA person who won't tell you he's terrific. He's an unbelievable teacher. Um, he's a great basketball mind. You know, I t- we've talked about it before. I think he's going to be an NBA coach someday. I think when he lives for, leaves Virginia, it's not for Indiana. It's for the NBA. And I'm not saying that's going to happen like this year or even in the next five years. I just think at some point Tony Bennett's an NBA coach. Um, all that said, here's the truth. I started writing about this last night, and then I just scrapped it because I felt like, why am I writing about Virginia? Like the Sweet 16's coming up. I can do this another day. But I've got all the words right here in front of me. I'll read them to you. Never made a Final Four and advanced to the, uh, advanced to the Elite Eight uh, just once despite being a top two seed in three of the past four seasons. His Cavaliers were a one seed in 2014. Follow me here. One seed in 2014, lost 61-59 to fourth seed Michigan State in the Sweet 16. They were a two seed the following year, 2015, lost 60-54 to a seventh seed of Michigan State team in the round of 32. Last year, one seed, uh, lost 68-62 to a tenth seed Syracuse in the Elite Eight. And this year, five seed, playing a, a Florida team, that had, I believe, gone 3-3 three and three in its six games leading into the NCAA tournament, had lost a starter down the stretch, and they still lost to that same Florida team 65-39 by 26 points. Four-seeded Florida team beat them by 26 points. I cannot definitively tell you that Tony's style of play, which is essentially guard like crazy and play at the slowest tempo possible, and by the way, in terms of tempo, uh, according to Ken Palm, Virginia is ranked 351 out of 351. Literally nobody plays slower. His style, and this is oversimplifying it, but this is the, the, the core of it. We're going to guard like crazy, uh, and we're going to play really, really slow. And when you continue to either A, lose to teams you're not supposed to lose to, at places in the tournament you're not supposed to lose, or just get run out the gym by a Florida team that, frankly – was good but not great in the SEC. I think you gotta, at the very least, open your mind up a little bit and 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 wonder. All right, is this something to do with the way we're playing, or have we just have have we just had a four year run of bad luck, and you know it, it, the ball will bounce our way at some point. Obviously, when you lose by twenty six, it ain't got nothing to do with the ball bouncing your way. But you get my point. I, I think it's a it's a conversation you probably ought to have either with yourself or with people whose opinion you trust because. Four straight years of disappointing NCAA tournaments for a coach of his caliber uh, seems like something's not right. Yep. 
Uh, would agree. All right. What are your thoughts on Gonzaga's Northwestern, you know, that whole deal that went down there? Well, they ran him off the court, right? Oh, no. oh, you're talking about the, 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 uh, oh no, no, no. The, they, they started to run him off the court. Then Northwestern came back and right. then we get the technical foul on Chris. Yeah. And then the botched and the botched, uh, Baskin interference thing. Cause this, well, that's what this I mean, was, right? this would have probably been a top two story. I think heading into Monday had Sunday not gotten so wild and wacky. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd almost just forgotten about it. Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's funny. Cause I mean, listen, it's, 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 it's a it's a marathon that's a sprint these these four days in terms of uh, watching and writing and having to absorb and get all of it. I freaking love it, but oh my gosh, it is it is exhausting in the best possible way. So yeah, it's like whoa, the whole Gonzaga Northwestern thing happened. Um, my quick thing on this is that Collins absolutely deserved the T, uh, like no doubt about it. But I I totally get him being frustrated. His team's making a huge. They're mounting a comeback, and it would have been a three-point game if the right call had been made. Instead, he then induces himself into the technical. It's a seven-point game. Gonzaga never is uh, – or Northwestern's never closer than five points the rest of the way. I still believe Gonzaga would have won, but I have to admit, as I was watching this, and I wonder if listeners had sort of the same feeling. As I was watching that Northwestern push, I was like, man, I'm starting to get some faint – feelings about the ucla game from 06 i do not like what what they're doing here i was i was really getting frustrated with the way gonzaga was playing just because i wanted to see a good game and they were almost vomiting it away then that happens it kind of just it just it stemmed a little bit of the tide i still think they would have won but collins had a case and lastly and then i'll throw it to gp if i told northwestern fans in november hey listen you're gonna play a number one seed in a great game and get to the second round, playing your first tournament, get a single-digit seed. Are you going to take that? Or are you going to chance what's going to happen this year? Every single Northwestern fan would have taken that. There's no doubt about it. So big picture, huge year. It just stings to have it end like that. Even You think even President Selena Meyer would take it? She might be the only one who wouldn't. I think she might not. I think she drop. She would drop the c word on me and say, "No, there's no shot. We're ta- we're gonna we're gonna see what happens." Listen, I um I know the right thing to do is just say. You know, if you're Chris Collins, you, you can't do that. Your team's in a game, high stakes. You can't. There, there have been many coaches who famously got technical fouls in the NCAA tournament that, um, you know, at the very least, uh, diminished their team's chances of of winning a particular game. I believe John Calipari, 1996, when he was with UMass, got one in the. Did they lose to Kentucky in the semifinals that year? Yeah, uh, I, I feel like he got one in that game. I feel like he, I've had a conversation with him um, about how he regretted getting one in that game. And I bet you on some level. Or Are on you stationed with Iowa State, two seed, elite eight? That right, happened. Right. I, um, I bet you on some level uh, Chris regrets what happened. Obviously, you can't do that. Like you can't, you can't, you can't give free throws to the other team when you're on a run. You kill your momentum. You uh, you expand the other team's lead or expand your deficit, however you're looking at it. Um, it's a mistake. All that said, I, I find it difficult to criticize somebody who reacts to something probably the exact same way I would have reacted to it. Because when you get a bad touch, you know, like um, block charge call, like it's a block charge call, what are you going to do? Or you get a bad... Um, you know, just any sort of normal foul situation in a basketball game. Like, those happen every three minutes, if not more often, unfortunately. You, you sort of got to live with those and, and hope that they balance out over time. A dude stuck his hand through the rim. All right? 
And it was, here's how you know it was obvious. Because if it wasn't obvious, Chris wouldn't have reacted the way he did. Now, I will say that he was wilding out for a lot of that game. And there's some thought that he should have had a technical foul way before that. But the fact that he reacted the way that he reacted, and he knew immediately, because go watch his hand gestures. He's gesturing. His his arm went yeah. through the ring. Oh, yeah, he knew it. He yes. saw it. If he saw it, and you got three officials on the court, and they didn't see it, wouldn't you be furious? I mean, you're 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 in a about, about forget like you're in your first NCAA tournament for your school's history. You've already won a game. Now you got the one seat on the ropes. You might be going to the Sweet 16. You're rolling. Your team's playing. The other teams rattle, and the officials let a dude stick his arm through the rim, block a shot. Like, how would you react? I I this is where I struggle with this. On one hand, I say, come on, Chris, you can't do that. On the other hand, I say, that's what I, I would have killed that official. Like, I would have thrown a chair at the guy. How do you miss that? I mean, it's so tough. Yeah, I know. It's because you got to realize that these guys, they're so in the moment and you're just dying to win this game and you're you're pushing and you might upset the number one seed and you know what just happened was a missed call and you're furious and you can't believe it. And it's I, I totally get it. Um, but he totally, totally deserved the tech and he knows he did. Now, afterward, he had, you know, a, he had this year's Torian uh, Prince moment. um with you know just nodding his head along because he's listening to the NCAA statement at the press conference before he makes his opening statement an NCAA official is reading the the NCAA statement that the call was missed but the technical was appropriately assessed I love how they read the rule they're like it is against it is against rule bx4c2 category two uh, you're not allowed to stick your arm through the rim. We're like, thanks. Thanks, NCAA, for clarifying whether you can stick your arm through the rim to block a shot. And real quick here, as we're as we're on this, before we just kind of swoop around the bracket and then hit coaching stuff, um, I am not one to – I really try and resist um, getting too worked up over officiating. For people that want to do it with this tournament, it's totally validated. There's just – there have been some brutal non-calls, some brutal calls – um, that said, like, like Duke didn't get a friendly whistle, but Duke didn't deserve to win the game. So a lot of these teams that lost, um, you were on your way to kind of losing as, as is, but, uh, but I have to believe that JD Campbell, who's the director of officiating for the NCAA, like the grades on some of these games for these officials aren't going to be good. And I say that with, um, reminding listeners that, you know, every official is graded, every game is graded and college officiating they basically it's it's at a ninety three percent accuracy level in terms of when they look at the tape. Did you make the right call? That's pretty damn good. But you gotta you gotta try and do better here. I hate anticipatory whistles. I saw it at least five or six times in this tournament. I hope it's eliminated in the Sweet Sixteen. Um, obviously, that is something that while neither of us had to write about it, I'm very aware that people listening to the podcast, watching the games, were frustrated by the officiating. That happens in every sport. Felt it, you know, it warranted bringing up on this podcast. It's not all time bad, but I totally get it. Like there just have been a, a few spots here where it's been frustrating because I know the officials are better than what we're seeing here. Hopefully, none of the games upcoming are marred by a bad whistle. So Gonzaga gets past Northwestern. They're going to play West Virginia in the Sweet 16. West Virginia, of course, uh, got past uh, Notre Dame, and Notre Dame turned the ball over 14 times. We pointed out on the last podcast. And somebody was very anxious to point it out on Twitter. I thought you guys said Notre Dame doesn't turn the ball over. Yeah, they don't. They did against West Virginia, but they don't as a team normally. They led the nation in, in offensive uh, turnover percentage. 
which means they're the best at not turning the ball over, the best in the entire country. But that West Virginia press, man, and Notre Dame got settled down, you know, in the second half, and and they they only turned the ball over, I think, five times in uh, in the second half, nine times in the in the first half, maybe something like that. So fourteen total. So they got you can get used to it after a while, or at least it doesn't rattle you the way. Um, it rattles you initially, but like you can't prepare for that. I know it's the old cliche in coaching, like there's no way to prepare for that. But there really is no way to to you know accurately and and effectively prepare for what it is West Virginia is going to throw at you. And so it'll be interesting to see how Gonzaga handles that uh, because that's going to be one Sweet 16 game in the West Regional. The other one, of course, is Arizona Xavier. How big is it that it's Sean Miller and Chris Mack? It is you know the first time I ever was stepped foot on the Xavier campus. You know, Chris Mack was there working for Sean Miller. You know, like I was watching them run a practice together. And then, of course, Sean leaves for Arizona. Chris gets promoted. And Chris has been phenomenal at Xavier. Sean's been phenomenal at Arizona. Does it register? Is that a big story in Cincinnati but not around the country? Or is it a big story anyway? Well, I mean, I I don't know. Um, I I do think it's interesting. Now, this is the second time, by the way, in three years. They they did meet – uh, two years back, uh, Arizona got the better of him. Was also a two seed. Xavier was a six, eight point win. Um, you know this isn't going to be fun for Sean. He doesn't want to have to coach against Chris. He doesn't want to have to coach against that program. But just, just the way the bracket breaks, real quick, Arizona did get a nice fight from St. Mary's. That was about what I expected there. Um, credit to St. Mary's for doing a really good job. Um, I I feel like we'll be talking about Randy Bennett as the next coach at Cal in a number of days or weeks. That that feels like something that should happen. Maybe Cal goes somewhere else, but that's to me. If I'm Cal, I hire him. Um, interested in the Arizona Xavier game to see if Xavier can play up again because they've been able to look really good in the first weekend. Uh, Arizona's a different level of opponent, um, but overall in the West, you know couple surprises but not uh, not utter chaos i'm glad that we still have the the prospect of arizona versus gonzaga in the elite eight that's the game that i would like to see but obviously you know no guarantees um yeah like i, I eric musselman makes some sense at cow uh randy bennett makes some sense at cow but uh, certainly it's if, if bennett were ever going to bounce from st mary's like the cow job seems like the one that uh that he might get here uh xavier as far as i'm concerned like whatever happens, it happens. Like they've already so house money. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the idea that, and I don't have, like Chris was pointed out in his press conference the other day. Like, you know, all these people telling you know my players they're not good enough. I don't know. Like I, I don't remember saying the players aren't good enough. But like when you lose Edmund Sumner and Miles Davis, like that's two guys who are supposed to be starting for you. Two guys who arguably on paper were supposed to. You tell me uh, heading into the season. Where would Edmund Sumner, Miles Davis rank in terms of most important players on the Xavier roster? Uh, honestly, they're they're in the, Edmund Sumner. I would have had one, and Davis, I would have had three behind okay. Blue. Right. Okay. So two of the top three players. You lose two of your top three players. And by the way, like Xavier had a six-game losing streak late in the season. They went through a stretch where all they did was beat DePaul. Right. So the I like it was very reasonable to to conclude that you know what maybe they're not that good anymore. You know they did lose their point guard and lose Miles Davis. Maybe they're not that good. Uh, but like listen, when you can then then bounce it into the Sweet Sixteen, I, I think you can say whatever you want to say. I'm fine with it. I'll nod along. Uh, awesome job by those guys. Awesome job by that staff to even get them in this position is uh, is pretty remarkable given uh, the losses that they've had relative to the roster they thought they were going to have. 
uh, in March. Let's bounce over to the South Regional. That's going to be uh, here in Memphis. I just uh, left New York this morning. I'm back in Memphis now, my hometown. Um, leaving for New York on Wednesday, so I'm going to miss this completely. But I do think it is the best regional in terms of the way it's set up. It's the only one that got the one, two, three, and the four. Uh, that is North Carolina, Kentucky, UCLA, and Butler. And I pointed this out last night on Twitter. I thought it was interesting. The three seed's already beaten the two. Carolina's already, I mean, uh, uh, UCLA's already beaten Kentucky. The three seed's already beaten the two. The two's already beaten the one. That's uh, Kentucky beating North Carolina. And the four hasn't played any of these. But the four does, that's Butler, have two wins over a one seed, that's Villanova, and three other wins over Sweet 16 teams. That is one over, help me, who am I? One over Arizona, right? So, like, yeah. you've got four teams here, and I can tell you who I think is going to win. You can tell me who you think is going to win. But all four of them, this is my point, have won games in this season that suggest they're capable of beating anybody they play in this regional. And beyond that, you get the storyline that we've touched on before. John Calipari coming back to Memphis. Uh, it's, it's the biggest story here by far. I, I wonder if it's the type of, I wonder if it's a little bit like Sean and Chris in Cincinnati. Like it's a big story in Cincinnati, but I don't know that anybody in Memphis is talking about Sean Miller coaching against Xavier. And I don't right. know that if anybody in Cincinnati is talking about John Calipari coaching back inside of FedEx Forum. But it is a big deal in this city because as weird as it might sound, um, and I do think it's weird. Uh, Memphians, for the most part, or at least you know, Memphis basketball fans, are not over him leaving. They don't like the fact that he left. They don't like how he left. They don't like him in general. They don't like enjoying his. They don't. They don't. <laughs> they don't. They don't enjoy watching him be successful. <laughs> like this really is true. If you told Mem- I believe you. Just, yeah. If you told Memphis basketball fans right now, they could have one of two things next year: either Tubby Smith would win the American Athletic Conference and go to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament, or the NCAA would launch an investigation into Kentucky that found major violations on John Calipari's watch. You can only pick one of those things to happen. Which one would you like to happen? Memphis basketball fans would say, send Tubby to the CBI, bring down John Calipari. They would rather watch him lose than watch Memphis win. That really is where it is even eight years later. That's. I agree with you. It's bananas. That's, that's just the, uh, Because that's, from, my, from my perspective – from my perspective, and Memphis fans hate it when I say this, the best four years of Memphis basketball that my – well, two of my children weren't even alive for it. But that that will happen in my – the best four years of Memphis basketball happened in the last four years of the John Calipari era. My children have a 14-year-old, a 3-year-old, and a newborn. They will never experience four years of Memphis basketball like those four years. My children will never watch the University of Memphis basketball program be within a second of winning a national championship. I genuinely believe that. Uh, John Calipari is the best coach, not only basketball coach to ever work at the University of Memphis, he's the best coach to ever work at the university, period. Any sport, doesn't matter, any era. And so when you think of it in a vacuum, it'd be like, what are you talking about? Build a statue of the guy. But I don't know if you remember this or even know this. Last year, some of John's, because John still does have friends in the city, some of his wealthy friends who are Memphis boosters wanted to honor him. You know, try to put this all to bed because they still like it's funny. John still has like 20 great friends in Memphis. They're, they're mostly the wealthy people. I've always said about John, if he wants you to like him, you'll like him. Like and so he has 20 people that he cares about who like him. And so they do. And he has that relationship still. He still bounces in the city every once in a while for like a, a somebody's birthday party or whatever. Um, 
so some of these wealthy guys got together with the president of the University of Memphis. And they said, hey, we want to honor John. Like, have a dinner and, and then honor him at, 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 at FedEx Forum, you know, in, at a Memphis game. Like, work it out at the schedule where he can come to a Tigers game and then we'll introduce him at halftime and everybody can give him a standing ovation. And when news of this got out, the backlash was so significant and angry that they ended up – oh, and by the way, a lot of this was rooted in – I don't know this to be sure. I probably shouldn't even say it. It is something that I heard. Like John was willing to donate some money to the University of Memphis. To like, he was going to donate some money. They were going to celebrate him. It was going to be a big to-do, kind of like what they did for him at UMass. And when this became public, it, the backlash was so significant that the, the University of Memphis canceled it. The president canceled it because there was no scenario where you could walk him inside FedEx Forum without it being the loudest booze you've ever heard. And that's like, and that, so that was seven years later. So that's how ugly it still is. And I've explained this uh, forever and consistently uh, on radio and in, in the written word about how at some point you got to get over it and recognize he did great things at the University of Memphis and then did, frankly, what any other coach would have done, uh, barring very few, or what most people do in their careers, which is lead for a better opportunity. I, like I like I, I John Calvary's career is, is obviously different than my career in the sense that he's a big time basketball coach and all I do is talk and write a, and tweet about sports. But in terms of our career decisions, they're very much the same. Every job I've ever had, I try to do it as well as I can do it, and then when I get new offers or opportunities, I consider them. And if they're not better for a variety of reasons than what I already have, I say no, thank you. And if they are, I've taken them. That is no different than what John did. He had the Memphis John for nine years. He worked it as hard as he could work it. He could have gone to South Carolina at one point, didn't want to go. Could have gone to Arkansas at one point, didn't want to go. Could have gone to countless other places at one point, never went. And then Kentucky opens and he can get it and he took it. Most guys would have done that. Maybe Jay Wright doesn't leave Villanova because he's a Philly guy uh, to go to Kentucky. Maybe some other guys don't leave their jobs because they're you know, connected in a very real way to that school. John Calipari worked at Memphis for one reason. Because when he was ready to get back into college basketball, Memphis was the best job available. That was his only connection to the city. It doesn't mean that he didn't have developed some sort of connection here. But it's like Memphis isn't his hometown any more than, uh, you know, Massachusetts is his own state. It's just it was the place where he worked for nine years. And then the Kentucky job opened and he took it. And I don't understand why Memphis fans can't come to grips with that or understand it. But they can't. And so him being back inside FedEx Forum is going to be quite a, quite a deal, although it won't be what some Memphis fans have, have uh, hoped for. What they hope is that he enters a building in Memphis and he gets booed out of the building. In reality, you know as well as I do, Kentucky fans are going to have all the tickets. So it's going to they be, will. So it's going to be 16,000 Kentucky fans cheering Big Blue Nation the way they always do. But still, um, his media availability on Thursday will be unlike anybody else's media availability in this NCAA tournament, I would assume. And then, of course... Uh, they're going to play UCLA. That's a rematch from a game inside Rupp Arena. Bruins won that one earlier in the year. North Carolina, Butler in the other one. Um, so um, I've got UCLA coming out of that, but I, I can reasonably see how any of the four could maybe advance to the Final Four. Um, well, I think that was a nice little warm-up for your radio show, by the way. We record this podcast. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to do that same thing in like 50 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let me just—I know we gotta get the coaching stuff, and we're kind of running out of time here. So, uh, real quick, um, 
Kentucky Wichita State lived up to my expectations. It was an ugly game. Um, great on Kentucky to get two blocks in the final possession. Uh, I wrote basically that coaches like Calipari and others at top 25 programs, they don't have to. It would be great if one or two took uh, Greg's call so that the committee didn't do this again to Wichita State next year because who's to say that they would not, you know, they'd be put in the same exact position. Um, it's awesome that Kentucky and Wichita State put on these great tournament games. Uh, I'd love to see them actually play in the regular season. I think that would be really cool and maybe a way that these two programs don't have to be forced to be thrown up against each other. In the second round of the tournament, uh, up top in the region, Michigan's an amazing story. They're also a really good team at this point. It's hard to overstate how incredible what they're doing is. I mean, I do think it's the most incredible sports story of 2017 so far. Now, they're going to get an Oregon team that, uh, honestly, Oregon matches up well, even though Oregon's not at full strength. By the way, Oregon's lucky to have not beaten Rhode Island. Damn it, Rhode Island, you had it, and you and you blew it. Dan Hurley, you had a great year. Um, Rhode Island. I could see that one that coming. Game. By the way, as the game was unfolding. Oh, it was so frustrating. Just like from a bracket perspective, like I got him in the I got him in the Elite Eight GP. So sometimes you just you kind of root for like you want your picks to be right. And I'm like, don't be doing this to me right now. And you're right, you could see it coming. Just uh man, man. And plus, you know, we lose. We, Xavier's the only double-digit seed in the Sweet 16. We lose a little bit of a charm. Like, Rhode Island would have been a really cool story to get to the second weekend. Um, not that I have anything against Oregon, but, you know, just to get to get that program, which is essentially a mid-major plus, by the way. Like, uh, some of these programs in the A-10, I, I get the feeling people don't understand that even though it's from, like, a multi-bid conference, like, Rhode Island is not the easiest job out there, okay, that, which is evidenced by their lack of success in the tournament over the years. Um Man, that was that was frustrating to watch. Iowa State-Purdue was an amazing game. I think it was one of the three or four best games of the tournament, only because Iowa State charged back. Riveting final five minutes. Caleb Swanigan moves on. Kansas was a highlight reel against Michigan State. That game was close until there was about six and a half minutes to go. Kansas pulled away. We do get the, the Mason versus Swanigan thing. So I thought it was a very, very good, like Sunday in general, GP. Kansas-Michigan State was the only game that wasn't really good from start to finish, and even that was... That was good for 70% of it. So um, though we didn't have any buzzer beaters, though we don't have any Cinderella candidates in the Sweet 16, and we've lost the odds-on favorite and the number one overall seed, it's still an enticing second weekend. And it was like it was a good first weekend. It wasn't an all-timer, but it was not a snoozer. We had plenty of things that were riveting and a lot of games that were tense kind of throughout. And if just to go through the regionals, because we talked about this um, earlier or, or late last week, you know, right now in the East Regional, somebody's going to the Final Four, a coach for the first time. We talked about that already. You go down to the West, the only one that can prevent either Mark Few going for the first time or Sean Miller going for the first time or Chris Mack going for the first time would be Bob Huggins going for the third time. That's the way that one sets up. Up, up in the Midwest Regional, obviously Bill Self's done it. Obviously John Beeline's done it. Uh, but Dana Altman's got an opportunity to go to his first. Matt Painter's got an opportunity to go to his first. And then down in the South Regional, Obviously, uh, John Calipari and Roy Williams have both done it, but Steve Alford's got a chance to go to his first, and Chris Holtman's got a chance to go to his first. We will look more at the upcoming matchups on Wednesday's podcast, but before we get out of here, um, there was some coaching developments over the weekend, or at the very least since we last talked. Uh, I, I, think the big, I think the biggest one is Brad Underwood leaving Oklahoma State to be the head coach at Illinois because... Uh, you know, most people uh, just don't leave Power Five jobs after one year. Like, if you get the Arkansas Little Rock 
job like Chris Beard did and you kill it for a year and you get a UNLV offer or a Texas Tech offer, then maybe you bounce after after one year. But you don't typically go to a place like Oklahoma State and then bounce after one year. But this is totally, you know, from talking to people, on the athletic director at Oklahoma State. I think folks um, probably know by now uh, Brad Underwood was vastly underpaid um, as a Big 12 basketball coach. He was only making about $1 million a year. And let me stop here for a second because when I tweeted that on, I guess it was Saturday, I get all these people going, $1 million a year, vastly underpaid? Yes, relative to uh, relative to what Big 12 basketball coaches make, it is vastly underpaid. Like I'm not talking about whatever it is to your stupid job is. Like, yes, like whatever it is you do for a living, you probably aren't underpaid at $1 million per year. But if you're a Big 12 basketball coach, yes, $1 million a year is vastly underpaid. Just like if you were, I don't know, starring in Iron Man and only getting $2 million, you'd be vastly underpaid. And so uh, Underwood was only making a $1 million a year. That was the lowest of any Big 12 coach. And once he got this thing turned around, what Mike Holder, the athletic director at Oklahoma State, should have done is got in touch with his agent, Underwood's agent, and said, let's get a new deal hammered out. This guy's unbelievable. He inherited a roster that caused us to fire our old coach. And it took him a while to get it going. They started 0-6 in the Big 12, but we're rolling now. He's clearly got the goods. We're headed back to the NCAA tournament. Let's get a new deal done. What do we got to do? Instead, Holder kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I don't want to speak to exactly what happened here, but I can guess you know, uh, Brett Underwood's agent's Brett Just. Brett Just represents a whole bunch of coaches. He's talking to athletic directors all the time about all sorts of things, about all sorts of clients. And at some point, he gets on the phone with Illinois, and they're probably asking about this guy and asking about that guy, asking about this guy. And then the conversation comes up about Brad Underwood. Hey, I heard he doesn't make much money. What if we paid him $3 million a year? Could you get him to move? And with Mike Holder being so hesitant, if not... Uh, unwilling to do a deal that properly compensated a guy relative to the job that he was doing. And then you get another athletic director who's coming in and ready to throw, I think the number is like $18 million at you, six years, $3 million a year, maybe a little more. Like it's just human nature. You're fighting with your athletic director, resenting him for not even trying to get a new deal done with you. Oh, we'll talk about it after the year. You can talk about it after the season's over. That's fine. But guess what? Illinois AD wasn't waiting. He's ready to talk about it right now. And they put a package in front of him. And and by the time you overwhelm him with money, and it reminded me a little bit of Dwayne Wade leaving the Miami Heat. All you want is the people that already have you to want you, to love you, to tell you how great you are. But they're not. They seem to not be appreciating you. And then this other school comes in, another school in a part of the country that you're already familiar with because you lived there once before, comes in and says, hey, I don't know what's going on with the athletic director at Oklahoma State. But if I were your athletic director, I don't need to wait to put $3 million in front of you. I'll do it right now. Like, let's, if you want to go, let's go. And so they caught Holder completely off guard, but that's his own fault. Like, if I were an Oklahoma State fan right now, I would be furious, furious yep. with Mike Holder because his um, either stubbornness or inability to recognize how the coaching market works these days, one of the two, perhaps both, uh, they cost Oklahoma State an excellent basketball coach and it is very hard to get the right guy these days when you're trying to hire at a place like Oklahoma State because you can't just go out and hire anybody anymore you have to usually take a swing on a on a mid-major coach an unproven coach a retread 
um, you know, a media personality, whatever. And so when you hit one, you got to do everything you can to keep it. And then if that guy wants to leave for another job, that's fine. It happens. But like, you got to do everything you can to keep him there. They didn't do anything to keep him there. And now they're in another coaching search. And I just got a text while we were recording this uh, from somebody who works in that industry who said, um, here, Oklahoma State's scrambling. There's a lot of division uh, between the people there. There's some people pissed off there, and they should be because they Mike Holder messed this up. Yeah, I don't blame Underwood whatsoever. Um, you can't, and this is just a botched job. There's no doubt about it. Illinois, that is the best hire of any school that will make any hire in this carousel because I believe that. I think Underwood is that good. I think he can totally get Illinois to top 25 status continually. Uh, just a, a great job by Whitman, their, their AD. That is just... Uh, one hell of a move and you just never know where there might be daylight where there might be an opportunity to get a coach and if you have the money and you can be aggressive and if you can essentially triple a, a guy's salary and and you're making you know the illinois oklahoma state jobs i would actually put them right on the level playing field i think they're just about even to be honest oklahoma state's got more history behind it illinois got uh you know maybe some better recruiting advantages but they're about the same in terms of the kind of towns they live in and, and the leagues and the people you're dealing with, no fault whatsoever for Underwood to do this. I totally get it. Outstanding hire. Um, I'll pivot this back to UGP. Now we sit and wait on Indiana. Obviously, Alfred is Oh, I, I'll tell you one, one other thing about Underwood. How about this? Because, okay. Because athletic directors now are so concerned that we're just going to get the guy a raise. What's the point? And honestly, that's what most people in the industry thought would happen with Brad Underwood. Everybody knew he was underpaid, but if you go in and offer him two, Oklahoma State would come back in and offer him two, and then he would just say, well, why am I leaving? You know, I've got, I've, I've got a home here. Like, I've, I've already spent a year here, whatever. Most of the, and so, like, I was talking to somebody, I'll keep it pretty vague, who works at another place that either has now or had a job open. The type of job that, you know, you're hiring a big name or you're, you're hiring, you got real money to spend. And I mentioned to him, you know, Brad Underwood doesn't make anything at, at Oklahoma State. Like, you you know, could you just throw a bunch of money at him and get him to jump? And they were under the impression, yeah, you could, but it'd probably just be a waste of time. It'll probably just be, um, we'll, we'll offer him, and then Oklahoma State will counter, and then he'll stay. And so they didn't, to my knowledge, they didn't even go down that road, seriously. And uh, I bet you when when Brad jumps to Illinois, you're going, oh, no, maybe, maybe we should have. Because um, the, the perception in basketball circles was that, yeah, you can offer him a lot of money, but he'll probably just get more money from Oklahoma State and stay. But Mike Holder so misplayed his hand and so messed this up um, that he was actually there for the taking. And I give Illinois all the credit in the world. They recognized it. They were um, definitive in what they were doing. And they got, I agree with you, done probably what is going to go down as the best coaching hire uh, of this coaching carousel. And then the other one, um, and I love the way this went down, Mike Hopkins goes to Washington, a longtime Syracuse okay. assistant. Um, it's just Was the coach in waiting. And within hours of Mike taking the job at Washington, Syracuse announces that Jim Beheim's contract has been extended beyond next season. Now, for folks who aren't familiar with the situation – when, when Syracuse was in the middle of this NCAA scandal and, um, you know, people were questioning whether Jim Beheim deserved to have his job because it was years and years and years of cheating. Um, Syracuse, uh, seemingly an attempt to, in an attempt to, I don't know, 
quiet that conversation, said, okay, listen, we under, we hear where you're coming from. We're not going to fire a Hall of Fame coach, but we are going to usher him out. And so the new plan is that he intends to leave after the 2017-18 season. The point was, at least the way they explained it then, we'll let Jim guide the program through this probation. He feels like he's responsible for it. He needs to be the one to see it through. And then he'll walk away and Mike Hopkins will be the the next head coach of the Orange. That'll happen after the 2017-18 season. But then Syracuse got a new athletic director. And then, like every NCAA investigation in history, except for Penn State and Baylor way back when, and maybe Baylor football now, they all don't seem like anything when you look back at them. You know, like, like Kelvin Sampson was the devil, you know, in, back in 2008. And now, like, does anybody even care? Like, oh, Kelvin Sampson was making some phone calls and text messaging, like, who, whatever. Or Bruce, like, Bruce Pearl was like, oh, my God, how could Bruce Pearl have a cookout at his home and lie to the NCAA? Now, does anybody, like, you look back on it now, nobody cares. And so I predicted then that this would be the exact same way. In the moment, you know, everybody's like, Jim Beheim, cheating program, he has to go. Now nobody cares. Like Jim's been to another Final Four since then, and, and and more to the point, Syracuse doesn't care. And so they got a new athletic director, and it became clear in recent months. I think we talked about it like last week. It became clear in in re- or like certainly recently we've talked about it um, that Jim didn't had no intention of stepping away because every time somebody would ask him about it, he would never say the words. Yes, I'm, I told you, I'm retiring. I told you, I'm leaving after next season. He would not say it, and. So th- what happens is Syracuse announces yesterday after Mike leaves that yeah, hey, now, like, you know, the dynamics have changed. Like, we don't have a coach in waiting. We can't just, like, let Jim Beheim walk away. We don't know what we're going to do. They tried to pin it on, we have to keep Jim, uh, Jim Beheim because Mike Hopkins left us, when in reality, Mike Hopkins left you <laughs> because Jim Beheim wasn't going to leave you. That's what really happened. Yes. I mean, like, honestly, yes, because Hopkins has been at Syracuse basically more than half his life at this point. Um, coach and waiting. It, it just it's time for him to get a job to run a program. I think that is a potentially good hire. I mean, we'll see what he does. Here's the, the thing. I like, I like Hop. I like Hop. I know you like Hop. Everybody likes Hop. Anybody trying to tell you this is a home run, just like you're being dishonest. I no, no, I don't yeah. think it is. No, I, I know. I give it like I, a solid B. Like that, I give it a B. I think well, it could no, work. I, it could work, but like, how would you know? How do you know somebody who's right. been, whether somebody who's been a 20 year assistant is going to be a good head coach? There's just no way to know. It's a little bit honestly like Greg Gard. How did you know? Like, and, right. and it's worked out brilliantly. Like, I mean, I mean, has there ever been a more s- seamless transition from a legend to his successor than Bo Ryan to? Um, to Greg Gard in terms of like promoting from within. Like I know Kansas went from Will Williams to Bill Self. Like that's pretty seamless too. But in terms of like promoting from within, has anything ever worked better? Like 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 going from, going at UMass from John Calipari to what was it? Bruiser Flint? That didn't go like this. Or John Calipari to Josh Pazza? That didn't go like, like you know Greg like Bo Ryan. But you don't know if you're just promoting a, a a longtime assistant, a career assistant. You don't know, and so that's what I would say about Hop. I mean, like I can envision how it would work, and but I don't know for sure. We'll see. We'll see. I, I I'm interested to see what he could do there. Um, and like whatever, more Beheim, I'm fine with it. It's good for the media. Keep him at Syracuse. Oh, I'm 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 totally like I hope that, yeah, I hope that's the, clear. the idea. Yeah. Like, 
it's I, I just find it hilarious how they handled it. Yeah. Like like oh, oh my god, Mike Hopkins left us. What are we gonna do? We must keep Jim Beheim. No, Mike Hopkins left you because Jim Beheim was gonna coach till he's ninety eight years old. That's why Mike okay. Hopkins left you. Uh, right, last thing, GP. Um, you know, you reported that LSU has reached out to Crean to see if he's interested. So mm-hmm. there's the LSU opening. I'm fully on board with going after Kermit Davis. I just think he's the best fit. I think that they should do that. I'm not confident that he'll get it, but um, I think that I, I will just reiterate that I think that he would be a good hire there. Uh, but then you got that, and then you know, with Crean leaving Indiana Open, Alfred seems like the guy that should be the front runner. I mean, I, I I hear you know Billy Donovan out there. That's something that I personally it's not going to be Billy Donovan. That's come on, like I just don't see that uh, as uh, as something that's based in logic right now. So like, let's just put that T- to tell, the side. Tell me the tell me the no. Here's what I try to tell Indiana fans: name me the NBA coaches who have walked away from NBA franchises when they're under no pressure from their bosses. In other words, their bosses like them. They make six million dollars a year. And they have arguably one of the top three players in the world on their team. Who walks away from that to go coach in Indiana? It's just especially that early into his career. I, I listen. The Indiana job's a great job, but uh, to me, you, you chase out Alfred. Seems like it's gonna. To me, it seems from afar, it seems like it's gonna happen because he is not. I mean, if you read his quotes and you hear him, he's been asked about it. Uh, he's just not. He's not brushing it to the side here, and so. He seems like the front runner, but I will say, if for some reason that doesn't happen, and there are plenty of Indiana fans that don't want Alfred, by the way, so that I think that's it, what's the, happening there right now is interesting. The only Mac, thing, Holt, the, and Archie are all good choices, yeah. no matter what. You're not going to get a bad coach in Indiana. No I, I agree with that. They're not going to hire a bad coach. The only thing that makes me skeptical that the offer thing might work is you get all these like Indiana centric sites, and they're all bringing up the Iowa stuff. And the rapes, the sexual assault stuff, and like why, like like what like team team centric sites tend to gloss over that kind of stuff rather than bring, if they're bringing it up, I'm curious why are they bringing it up? What's their motivation? It suggests that they might not want Steve Offer, or somebody some of their sources are telling them they don't want you can't you can't go get Steve Offer because they don't want Steve Offer. So you bring up stuff from however many years ago. I'm not trying to dismiss what it is he did. Like he didn't handle that properly. I think that's. That's pretty clear, but um, the idea that some of the Indiana sites are bringing that up suggests to me that there is at least some pushback on the possibility of offered um, in Indiana circles. But, you know, and I wrote about this over at CBSSports.com. If you're Steve, it's a no-brainer. If you can take the Indiana job, you take it, and here's why. The UCLA fans already don't like him. Less than a year ago, they were flying banners that said fire offered above the campus. And though typically if you're a coach, you get back in good graces with your fans with a year like this year, I don't get the sense you see fans think Steve Offer's got anything to do with this. I think they think it's all Lonzo Ball. And when Lonzo Ball walks out of here, and by the way, walks out with TJ Leaf, walks out with Bryce Offord, walks out with Isaac Hamilton, UCLA probably going to lose four starters off this team. Steve's right back where he was. Next year, he's right back where he was with UCLA screaming for his head. I get it. And so it makes sense if he gets you get more money. I. But here's the thing. And here's the thing. If I'm UCLA, so the buyout's seven million. If I'm UCLA, I probably lower the buyout because I already know my fans hate him. There and and once your fans hate somebody, they're not gonna. That never goes away. Ask Tom Crean if you think it goes away. Goes away. It goes away temporarily if you win an outright league title. Then it comes back really, really quickly. Even if the reason it comes back is because you lost two starters. Uh, to season-ending injuries. 
so if I'm the AD, I go, okay, if 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 a year from now my fans will be going to be flying banners saying fire offered again, and I'm going to be trapped by a massive buyout, why wouldn't I lower this? Let Indiana come get their guy. We have a clean break on good terms. And then I just stack cash for somebody I think my fans might love, like Greg Marshall. Like if I'm – to me, this makes sense from Indiana's perspective. It makes sense from Steve's perspective. It makes sense from UCLA's perspective. Uh, usually under normal circumstances, if you are – and let's just say UCLA goes to the Final Four, you don't want to lose your Final Four coach. But this might be the rare circumstances where if you're UCLA, you don't mind losing your Final Four coach. Yeah. Uh, things are going to change by the time we talk on the next podcast and we're more than an hour in. But – uh, yeah, it's it's bizarre. Uh, um, just the way that this carousel has changed so drastically from what I was thought it was going to be three weeks ago. So I don't know. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll talk more. I'm sure about this uh, when we preview the games on Wednesday as well. And and by games you mean game, and by game you mean South Carolina Baylor 7:29 Shout out. p.m. Eastern tip on Thursday on Friday rather. Uh, that's on TBS. It's not the network of stars. It's not America's most watched network. But still, it's Terry Teagle's alma mater against Devin Downey's alma mater inside Madison Square Garden. Of all the sporting events that have happened in Madison Square Garden, where do you think this ranks? Uh, it's got to be top five. Certainly up there with the Rangers winning the cup. Um, Jordan's double nickel. I mean, we this could potentially be at the top of the list, especially if you get Devin Downey in the house. And I, I think that's got to be... I kind of hope that's in the works, but we'll see. We'll what's, see. The, what's the big Ali fight? Is it Ali Frazier? Is that right? Yeah, I think they've had a couple of notable uh, boxing events over okay. the years. Okay, okay. So it's Ali Frazier. We'll let, we'll let that be one, assuming it is Ali Frazier. If it's Ali somebody else, we'll call it that. We'll put that one. But two is two seems to be Devin Downey's return to Madison Square Garden for a South Carolina Baylor game. And if we, get, and if we get Terry Teagle in the house, Jesus Christ. You know what? I'm going to be in New York on Friday. Is it possible I can just call in sick to work and go experience Terry Teagle's alma mater, play Devin Downey's alma mater? I mean, here's my question. If he's going to be around, like, what coach do you have scheduled to speak on CBS Sports Network? And can you just kick that coach out of the studio and just have Devin Downey do, do the commentating instead? Because I think that's obviously the go-to. Dude, if you, if you see Devin Downey, at Madison Square Garden, and you don't get some like a whole bunch of stuff done. I'm talking selfies. I'm talking videos. I'm talking Instagrams. If you don't get, if you don't, if you don't leave Madison Square Garden Friday night with a phone full of Devin Downey media, you have failed the Ion College Basketball Podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna get it all done. Okay, <laughs> promise. Shout, promise. Shout out to Devin MFN Downey. And remember, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. It's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. And that really is true, by the way, because, for instance, we're about to put this at iTunes, but I can't write the actual post that's going to go on CBSSports.com until after my radio show, because my radio show starts in 26 minutes. So if you want, so I'm telling you, if you want to make sure you get the episodes as quickly as possible, go subscribe on iTunes. And don't ever make me tell you that again. We'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Till then, take care.